I think it's so hard when you're a physical business of any sort yeah. trying to get leases because landlords, they just don't want that risk. I mean, yeah. why would you go for the scrappy startup when you can maybe take a cost or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. From Swoop, it's Take the Plunge, a podcast about how business owners decided to stop what they were doing and took the plunge to start their own business. We take a look at how they came to that decision and what those first crucial steps were in getting their business up and running. My name is Kieran Burke and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we're joined by Mark Murphy. Mark is the founder of Pedomnia. Pedomnia builds delivery only digital native food concepts for the takeaway marketplace. Since launching in April 2018, Pedomnia have developed and launched three brands, Hannah, Freebird, and Burgerism. Burgerism has recently gone on to be long-listed in the Delivery Restaurant Awards for the best burger in the UK and Ireland. Perhaps you're delighted to get Mark to join and chat to us today. Take me back to when you decided to make the decision, I'm going to finish my professional career, I'm going to try something, kind of what, what your rationale was and what, yeah. what you were thinking. So, yeah, in terms of... Um... Food Omni, I think we really date back to September 2017 is when I left the world of employment and yeah. we became operational sort of March, April 2018. So there was a period there leading up to getting live. But for me, the question is definitely more about, you know, it's not so much why I stopped what I was doing previously, but why I started doing this. And I mean, for me, starting a business or becoming an entrepreneur was, was something that I'd always wanted to do for a number of years. And I think what I was and I'm most excited about is the ability to create something, to build something yeah. from scratch. So I think it's um, sort of a, an enormous sort of privilege to be able to build a company, to be able to hire people, to be able to create a product, to have customers. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's kind of, I always felt I would do it. It was just a matter of when. I mean, I used to work in, in banking and equity research in London, really enjoyed that chapter of my life, if you like. And yeah. It wasn't necessarily that I needed to get away from that, but the at some point starting a company, becoming operational was definitely very exciting to me and something yeah. I wanted to do. And in terms of kind of getting the decision for starting Food Omnia, were you in a place where you were kind of spitballing various different ideas or are you pretty certain that you saw an opportunity in in food, in kind of dark kitchens, um, what what was kind of your, your your thinking at the time? Yeah, so I don't think you wake up one day and go, okay, I'm I'm going to become an entrepreneur. So for yeah. me, this was years in the making, and lots yeah. of decisions, lots of things I'd decided to do or read or whatever had been about probably making this step. So I have a a note, uh, the, the note app that I use in my iPhone is. Yeah just there's, there's a particular note in there which is full of ideas you're probably the same but yeah i have like lists of ideas some of which are probably daft and then sometimes <laughs> you see someone else do it and you're like oh geez maybe these ideas aren't that bad yeah but with this particular with the idea of food omnia food delivery virtual brands i felt number one i knew a huge amount about the space yeah so when i worked in banking and finance, I was actually raising money or helping to raise money for companies in this space. Yeah. And I was also analyzing the sector as a whole. It was kind of like producing reports on this space. Yeah. So having that sort of luxury of being able to figure the industry out before actually committing wholeheartedly to it was phenomenal. And yeah. I just thought food delivery, I think SoftBank calls it a mega trend. Maybe that's actually a bad sign if they're talking about it. But there's a lot of evidence of food delivery being a massive growth story. And we're probably still only at the early stages mm -hmm. of that story. 
it's phenomenal to me to think about Deliveroo. Actually, it only started in 2013. It feels yeah. like it's been there Mad. since forever. I couldn't imagine the world without it. So, yeah, I've always really been obsessed with Just Eat and Deliveroo. I've been a shareholder in Just Eat for years. Um, a very, very minor one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, fascinated by the evolution of yeah. sort of the, uh, the delivery market in general. And then I think... I loved um, the idea of creating different types of food concepts, yeah. but it wasn't just that I felt I would enjoy that or I could be good at it, but that I felt the world and the UK in particular needed it. I, I yeah. really felt that delivery had become massive, yeah. but perhaps the only companies really focused on delivery were, were like Domino's Pizza. Every other, most other food service businesses were thinking about restaurant type operations yeah. and people coming in to collect food, not about how you create menus and food concepts that mm. travel well, that operate within a sort of delivery operation. So, yeah, I really felt there was a need. And, I, and you know, as a, a customer, a consumer myself, I used to order delivery food in London and I was never particularly impressed and mm -hmm. couldn't get over the lack of branding, the lack of like customer engagement, the lack of quality at times and yeah. the high prices. So, yeah. yeah, I felt it was an area that needed to be solved and now was an area that like warranted a lot of tension because people were buying more and more delivery food. And one thing I thought quite interesting is um, you obviously mentioned you're living and working in London, you're, cons you're a consumer within London, but your first move was to relocate to Manchester and look at setting up there. What, what was the decision behind that? Yeah, and, and actually that was, that was major upheaval in some respects. And at the mm -hmm. time I kind of batted it off, but I was kind of doing two things. I was sort of starting a, a company, which is a big thing to do and relocating which okay i was in the same country at least but manchester is so different to london it's, yeah. it's untrue and it's not a city I, I knew particularly well so i mean that decision i suppose in the early years of, of forming a company my needs have and t you know would take second priority so i felt for the company starting in manchester made a lot of sense yes yeah. and uh, that was the only priority so i didn't really care then about how i felt or where i lived and the reason we did that we worked very closely with the special projects team in uber eats and we were working with them out of their in their london office and really the conclusion was that it was the ex-london locations in the uk that needed this type mm -hmm. of service mm -hmm. uh there w was a lot of you know i wouldn't say saturation but there's a lot of choice in london Whereas in perhaps Manchester or Birmingham or Nottingham, mm -hmm. there was le even less sort of um, delivery focused operations or, or just options for delivery. Mm -hmm. So I felt this business was solving two pain points initially. Number one, very clearly, the consumer pain point of not being able to get perhaps good quality delivery food delivered mm -hmm. quickly at, at the right price. But number two, when the likes of Uber Eats went to a new market, they, you know, you need a, a level of restaurants, if you like, to make the marketplace a marketplace. And it's not just about getting numbers in there. You also want quality, too. So yeah. otherwise, no, why would anyone no. order on Uber Eats yeah. if it's just full of rubbish or perhaps only got two or three options? So when they were expanding beyond London, they actually, they were like, yeah, you're correct. We do need good partners, good restaurant partners to get live quicker in new locations so it was a really symbiotic relationship so we ended up getting access to a lot of data which like almost went uh, this isn't even ip anymore because lots of people have caught on to this now but yeah you know we had we had to the pin where you should locate in a city like manchester or a city amazing. like um leeds or wherever so yeah amazing really and, and actually that was the foundation of the business yeah and that also made 
the leap a little bit less uh, uncertain because it was kind of affirmation of yeah this need this is a service that's badly needed you know yeah and one of the things that when we've talked to a couple of business owners something they struggled with initially was getting a space because they're a first-time business owner and landlords aren't as easy to deal with because you're a first time and you mm. in this you just said amazingly you basically got the data from Uber Eats to say in this vicinity, if you said yeah. oh, you're in pretty good nick, did yeah, you have yeah. issues in in terms of locating uh, your first your first operational unit? Yeah, or? yeah. So specifically on that data, what it's pointing out is that uh, there is latent demand or there's a shortfall of supply relative to the demand. So we knew if we could get in that hotspot, if you like, yeah. we should see business. And in terms of finding locations, we were like pretty religious about trying to get within hundreds of meters of that yeah. pin. Yeah. So yeah, it, it it wasn't easy, but that was partly why we chose Manchester because some cities it's quite hard to locate centrally. Yes. But in Manchester is such an industrial city that we saw lots of like non-residential space or non-office space gotcha. in very central locations. It's quite strange, actually. I think it. it it heralds back to its industrial past, but you've got like warehouses here or like really industrial areas, which are maybe five minute walk from the city center. So it made sense in terms of a dark kitchen proposition and the actual infrastructure. And I saw looking at it on Google Maps, I was going around, you know, zooming in on different areas where these pins were. And I was like, I just saw lots of potential opportunities. Yeah. So yeah, it was hard, but we kind of ended up partnering with people on the first site that we had. And that was like a temporary location to get us operational, if you like, mm -hmm. find out are we good at, you know, producing food. And the kind of early evidence was very, very strong. You know, we had excellent reviews. We were top rated in the marketplace, which we thought was incredible given, you know, yeah. we'd never done food before. And then eventually we backed ourselves. We took a, a lease on a warehouse and we just converted that into a full scale kind of delivery or dark kitchen and that was in another pin and then the, the numbers from there were good and Amazing. kind of it, it did sort of back up the data or back up the narrative but yeah i think as we're now sorry to cut across you but as we're yeah. now maybe a little bit bigger a little bit more mature i can see like we're sort of looking at leases now and sometimes landlords are like i, I get a call back to say I thought, i'm like i thought you'd given that lease to someone else and they're like yeah, their numbers are, we're worried about their numbers. And then yeah. you're like, and then they're like, are you a new company? And like, we've actually got like nearly three years of trading history. And they're like, oh, great. So you can send yeah. us accounts. You're like, yeah. So yeah. it's massive. Roll on in. Like, yeah. Massive. Yeah. And it, yeah. I think it's so hard when you're a physical business of any sort, yeah. trying to get leases because landlords, they just don't want that risk. I mean, yeah. why would you go for the scrappy startup when you can maybe take a cost or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. And and did you find that you probably had to punch a bit heavier in that first lease in terms of giving more deposit or more rent up front? Did you have to do anything there to get it over the line? So the beauty of what we do is this is kind of a real estate play as much as it is a, a food delivery play because we're a restaurant but we're not operating out of a restaurant we operate mm -hmm. out of warehouses so there's a real estate arbitrage there in terms of obviously renting a square foot of warehouse is much cheaper than renting square foot of restaurants mm -hmm. so when you're looking for like prime retail real estate or restaurant real estate it's typically very expensive per square foot but when you look at warehouses it's a lot cheaper so we didn't really have to, it wasn't like an unbelievably competitive process because we, we were looking at a warehouse, which 
nobody really wanted. It's not like it's that easy to generate mm-hmm. sales from warehouses mm-hmm. on the edge of town. Yeah. So in our case, actually, uh, our job was made a lot easier by being uh, kind of an online only sort of food operation. And the landlord was actually just kind of happy to have someone bidding on the property. And nice. um, ironically, I think warehouses are now doing quite well through COVID because there's yeah. a lot of like, you know, dark fulfillment happening across mm-hmm. not just food, but all sorts of industries. Yeah, but I, I think when we when we were looking at warehouses, we were competing with people maybe who were like storing furniture in a warehouse. Gotcha. So, you know, okay, I'll give Mark and, and, and his business and a go. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And actually, you kind of touched on it earlier. You don't have a background in food. Uh, no. You know that you're going to be throwing this out there without being able to kind of traditionally market because it is a dark kitchen. How do you back yourself to say, I'm going to make something that's really tasty? Yeah. I mean, it's a strength as much as it is a weakness, I think, because yeah. you naturally come in with a fresh perspective. And that's definitely borne out in how we've done things uh, as I look back. But that was the fear. Yeah. I mean, and that was the investor pushback as well would have been on, you know, you know nothing about your <laughs> your industry really, do you? And I, uh, yeah. So I kind of had to like bat that off and figure that out. And I guess I always felt that I would rather it be food than AI because... Yes. AI is maybe not rocket science, but it's close enough to rocket science. And yeah, I, I, I actually love food. And when I when I moved to London, the thing that I probably loved most about London was the amount of incredible, like world-class food yeah. businesses and operations that are on your door. So it was impossible not to eat out sometimes in London because the, the food is so such good quality. I think London's one of the best food cities in the world. And that really developed my sense of, of what is the level you know that's yeah. the standard of a good burger that's the standard of, of whatever so yeah while i was a little bit nervous i felt it was something we could figure out and i think if you put a formulaic approach to it you know then you can add up the parts and you kind of get the answer you want but food is kind of like writing a song in some respects you know are you just a one hit wonder can you do that again kind of thing you're never totally sure until it's out there yeah. but um now that we've done it i would have a, an unbelievable understanding of perhaps the kind of, no pun intended, but the, the sort of makeup of the ingredients, if you like, to, to yeah, get yeah, us yeah. Uh, to a good brand. And I, th- I think, um, but I would go back and say the fresh perspective has been enormously helpful because people wouldn't have done what we've done. And I think because we were specifically looking at a frontier side of food in some respects in terms of food delivery, not as big perhaps, it had to be looked at differently, you know? So you're combining a lot of different things with, with online food, you're yeah. talking about the e-commerce transactional point of view, the branding, and, and then the food as well. But the processes as well are very different to restaurants. So we didn't have any bad sort of habits, if you like. Yeah. Well, I suppose linking into that, like something that was quite new and novel and not many other people doing it before is the fact that you're creating a brand, but it's behind it, not a physical restaurant. It's, in, it's within a, an app. How did you go about customer acquisition and getting people involved in the brand when it's placed in a non-traditional way? Mm, yeah. Now, as you talk through that question, I think about that slide in our first deck, which was the go-to market strategy. <laughs> You're like, yeah, yeah. Did that actually happen? <laughs> so it? it kind of did in a way. I mean, really what we did, we believed in the marketplaces. So yep. the Uber Eats and the deliveries. Now we worked exclusively with Uber Eats and we believed that if we sat in that marketplace long enough, 
the algorithm would re would reward us if we deserved yeah. to be rewarded. So when you're on the high street, you can get away with being average because people might pass you every yes. every day. But when you're in the marketplace, um, it's like you know walking past a shop, but instead of just being one brand there, there's maybe fifty or hundred. So you really have to be good uh, to warrant um, someone's someone's um, money. And what we effectively did, we've never spent money on marketing. So we viewed right. Uber Eats and the marketplaces as the marketing spend, but yeah. at least you only had to spend the money when you were getting a, an order. Um, so what we did to try and ensure that we got orders was just create really great product. And that's one thing in food that I've seen a lot of people come into this space who have no background in food, and they just kind of go at it a bit too like a software type business. So they build a product, but it's not necessarily amazing mm -hmm. or it's not consistently good and it needs to be iterated a bit too much. So we had a great product from very early on and um, we've been probably slower to build product because we put more time into this. Yeah. But once the product is out there, it, it does take time, but after sort of six months, you get maybe customers who might order, only order takeaway once every three months, they're kind of coming back. Word of mouth is spread a little bit and they're, you know, that's mushrooming and ballooning a little bit. So over time, you then sort of realize whether or not it's good. And thankfully, we've never had to market. Um, yeah. So that's probably how I'd think about that. Like, so, And have you invested in things like social media channels to support the brand in terms of, say, you have a good customer experience, you want to talk about it, you want to share it. Have you invested in, in, in creating a, a community around them that way? Yeah, we probably have. Uh, an opportunity to create more narrative around the brands yeah. uh, through social media. Um, what we probably have done, is we've grown very organically. And I think we've let, in some respects, we've let the consumer, you know, sort of determine the brand. And um, we've always been kind of product and customer led. And, and in terms of the branding, it's very clear to me now what, say, burgerism is, whereas mm -hmm. maybe two years ago, I might've been trying to write the story about what burgerism is, but now I'm like, oh, no, that just is the story. Yeah. And when I put together like onboarding documents for, for team members, I'm like, this is what burgerism is. Not because <laughs> what I say it is, but because this is actually what it is. Nice. So it's like, it's been a really holistic story in that sense. Yeah. I suppose kind of link, link to that and kind of back to your, you're in Uber Eats and, you, and you're hedging your bets that we're going to make a quality product and people are going to discover it. But I suppose one of the biggest drivers in that scenario is reviews. How stressful yeah, yeah. is the review process as an early stage business yeah. when you're just putting your product out there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, the reviews were everything to us. And, you know, they, they still are. Um, but at least we've got sort of a, a bank of reviews built up. So we have a little bit more confidence about ourselves. And um you're so sensitive to them. I mean, yeah, <laughs> you know, someone is, is critiquing you online, but yeah. it's it's kind of like that keyboard warrior thing. Absolutely, it just developed where they probably wouldn't say it to you in person, but once it's over a laptop, it's no problem. So, yeah, we we put a huge amount and still do huge amount of attention into the reviews we get, and I think you have to look at the one star reviews and say something has happened there to create that. But fortunately for us, we've got a. a you know, we built up a huge number of five-star reviews and that just gave us this great confidence to, to know that we're doing something right. And we built up, I mean, uh, you were asked about social media there earlier. We built up this huge following. Like we're not act, terribly active mm -hmm. on social media. We use it like as a communication tool more. Yep. We've still got like over 5,000 followers on one of our brands. 
and the reviews we've built up a huge number of reviews thousands of reviews and we've never asked anyone to review us so we never kind of did that sort of overtly like um you know this is and we're looking for reviews here you know we're trying to pay people to almost eat our food and, and give us a good review we've never really done that because we actually kind of think you're lying to yourself if you do that so you want to know what the real what the truth is and the truth thankfully was always very good but anytime there was maybe something that we could have worked on we've taken it on board and we've tried to fix it and we're really active and i think that's a key sort of part of being a virtual brand is when someone does review you i mean speak to them whether it's digitally or not but yeah we go back to people we speak to people we get we have a huge opportunity to get feedback from everyone which is mm-hmm. great mm-hmm. and if you go to a restaurant and sit in i'd say you never actually review that experience certainly not you know if it was a okay experience you're definitely not going to review it if it's really bad maybe you might but often you don't whereas everyone on uber eats and delivery they get like asked to review and sometimes they're reviewing at the item level so that's phenomenal it's a great opportunity actually for yeah. food uh, for a food brand um, one of the areas I'd love to chat to you about is kind of people and the kind of art of hiring the right people as you grow your business. Um, I suppose, who was the first person you, you brought on uh, that wasn't yourself? And then what has been kind of the key hires or who have been the kind of key hires as you've grown out the business? Yeah, people is a good one. People, I think, is the most important thing in any business, really. Probably the hardest thing to solve, but it's also the biggest opportunity. So when you get it right, it's just it just empowers everything. You almost, I think, the business can become invincible. Mm-hmm. You've got a great team. But actually, the first sort of person, if you like, to come on board was actually probably Uber Eats. And um, they were... Pretty strong. Like, <laughs> I, I know those guys really well that I initially worked with. Yeah. And some of them were like, I think employee number two in Uber Eats, you know what I mean? So like they were really quite like clued in, obviously, but also like able to make shots, able to call the shots. Like yep. So the rapport and the relationships built up there were really good. And um, some of those people have sadly moved on, but they're actually working kind of closer with the original founder of Uber now. But they were kind of the first people in some respects. And then the investors were also, they sort of followed that, one followed the other. And... They've been great along the way. They're kind of like a sort of consistent reminder of your progress in some respects. Yeah. And then uh, John came on board then probably, that sort of happened at the same time perhaps. And uh, John, I was in school with John, so known John for years going back to when we were probably 12, I suppose. Yeah, it, it was kind of a good fit for for me and for John uh, to, to give this project, to give this company a go and to get it off the ground and... Yeah, it was quite organic in terms of like the process. I think I was very lucky that when you get a company on board, it sort of changes a lot. Like you're kind of real all of a sudden. It's not not make you up. But yeah, I think it was um, who who you bring on, who who you kind of partner with in the early stages is very important. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily define you you either. You can evolve as well. And in terms of managing a kind of growing team, has there been stages in... Fidomia's growth where you've noticed you've had to change management styles in terms of as the as the staff base has, has grown? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, this is something I've really learned in 2020 in particular. You might start off, well, you, you start off as a founder and at some point you might be lucky enough to evolve to like a CEO. That doesn't just happen by kind of waking up and doing the same thing every day. You have to actively look at yourself, your performance, and the rate of change of your business and the things that are changing within the business. 
and say that's no longer for me that that, that job is no longer appropriate appropriate for me to be doing mm-hmm. and i think you have to keep on learning and developing which kind of sometimes feels really hard because you're so busy with other stuff yeah but it's like you almost owe it to the team and to the company and um, to make sure that you are evolving in the right way and i think particularly as a ceo you have to be very aware that sometimes all you're doing is motivating people sometimes all you're doing is, is directing people and if you don't provide a good enough incentive or or motive then the motivation will dissipate and if you don't provide the right direction frustration will build so i think your your job is really just to be that sort of uh, sort of director and comforter and and yeah and and, and really back your team uh, mm-hmm. and your people but if you're totally caught up in, in the day-to-day and stuck in the weeds then you you won't be doing your job i think it's very hard to make that transition though, yeah because obviously you're low on resources and funds and but in our business which is very very operation intense and very people focused mm-hmm. i mean we've got a lot of people on the team now and that means you have to be thinking about the people every day but also in my role i have to be thinking about how my role changes almost weekly mm-hmm Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating and I think really, really great advice. Just want to touch on something you mentioned there in, in, in relation to kind of the evolution is the investors that have come along with you. How have you found having that kind of relationship as a growing business that, that needs funding? Has the dynamic shifted between you and investors from the very embryonic stages where you're trying to get that first uh, check, the first first buy-in? Yeah, yeah, the, the dynamic definitely shifts. and. Um, What I'd say at the outset is that we've evolved probably slightly differently to be to how we would have expected and I think that's the case with all um, startups. We I I would have imagined that we would have been consistently fundraising, but we've actually bootstrapped our way to where we are now. So we we did that early sort of pre-seed round or pre-revenue round, which was great and um it's an it's amazing how, you know, such a small round has taken us to where we are today to be honest. So we've never really been in the position where it's like oh, there's only like a two month runway here we need to start fundraising today <laughs> yeah. and we've been lucky and i think part of that is because we're dealing with a product which doesn't require too much education you know people know what food is and they know what delivery food is and all of that so it's also a product though where the unit economics do make sense so if you're building like a a real sort of global type tech business the unit economics don't make sense for a long time i mean facebook for example didn't really know how it would make money until eventually started marketing and advertising and um but in the meantime it was just all it was doing was mm-hmm. looking at its maus and making sure that there was active users there and you know, it was growing and you know we think about profit later but with us it's like no we're selling something in the unit economics can make sense and they were so we had a very different profile but coming back to the investors really the shift there has been me going from please sir can can you sign this check to hey look i'm just too busy you know it's like you you start to own the relationship a lot change. more yeah yeah it is and and look if you've done well they respect you Absolutely. and it's kind of like they start thanking you for your time and whatever so we've got a great relationship with the investors and uh, we've got five effectively five angel investors um from all walks of life and, and different nationalities and and i i've each offers something different and yep. i think i don't know half of them are probably entrepreneurs or founders and half are like very clued into finance and investment and so yeah i i i love the dynamic with it and and actually my probably only regret is that 
I, you know, I, I wish I could kind of make more time for them yeah. because I usually do find it valuable. And actually, like I said earlier, it's a way to measure my own progress. It forces me to reflect when I produce any numbers mm -hmm. or, or kind of updates. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I suppose since going operational April 2018, you've managed to now knock out three effective businesses in, in, in their own right. Have you feel you're getting a methodology to it in terms of wanting to now scale that and consistently add more? Or are you at a case where, no, I want to go deeper with these with these brands and, and kind of push mm. them out further? What, what's, what's your thing? Yeah, yeah, very good question. I, I think we, I mean, we didn't know the answer to that question when we started out. We probably thought it was a case of just infinitely building brands and concepts. But within each brand and concept, there's an, an infinite amount of, perfectionism to be had if you want you know mm -hmm. you can keep on going with certain elements of a brand i think at this point what we've proven is that we know how to build really good quality brands and operations importantly so we've built our own kitchen and we've built the food and the brand and the team so we're very very full stack in that, in that respect and um, so we've learned a huge amount and um there's probably two things that i think think we should do and it's number one is to scale our existing brands to be in more places because i think more people across the uk would like to be able to order from us mm -hmm. and then number two is to perhaps um uh, build out more concepts which we might reverse engineer a little bit more now that we know what the the end result should look like and we'll be a little bit smarter about how we do things and you know, keep complexity is uh, keep complexity out of the equation as much as possible, and keep it simple as much as possible. So yeah, I I love the idea of perhaps creating a portfolio of of virtual brands, which are perhaps more geared towards enabling other people do this. So maybe we partner with other people. It could be real estate people, or maybe you know other food entrepreneurs. And I also love the idea of being you know an operator as we have been today of of rolling out our own concepts and and running them and, and evolving and improving them too so I don't think um I think we will we'll continue to sort of do two things at once perhaps yeah um you mentioned operations is very much core to the business and a, and a real strength to the business. Are there particular tools that you rely on uh that you guys use as a team regularly that make a big impact in terms of efficiency and how you can work as a team? I mean, there's there's some very like you know explicit tools. I mean, there's um, you know simple things like Slack, and there's there's a lot of other hospitality uh, specific pieces of software that we use. I, I would say, without trying to keep it relevant to your entire audience, I think one thing I would really encourage lists are terrific. So lists are a great way to recognize what's the priority, what's important, and work through a list. Lists are great ways to reduce or eliminate stress. You often find once you write a, a list of tasks down, you realize that's all, okay. Yeah. And maybe it's a very, very long list, but it's down on paper, you don't have to hold Absolutely. it on to all in your head. And there's enormous satisfaction from working through a list and ticking things off. But in an operational sense, lists also keep, they're kind of the handrails that keep the operation working smoothly, even when you're not there. If I'm speaking with the team, it's like, I know I can see I get a report every every time we open service that a list of things of actions procedures has been done. I get photos of some of those actions. So I'm like incredibly connected to each uh, day from an operational point of view without necessarily having to be there. And I think that's a critical tool because it sort of allows the business to scale. And all those kinds of things that allow the business to scale have to be invested in. And I think 
software, we're so lucky now that if you were starting a business 10 years ago, so many of these software tools didn't exist. You know, I don't know how you could manage. So paying a little bit extra every month in a fixed cost is absolutely worth the investment if it's the right piece of software, yeah. I suppose one thing I always like to ask is with a lot of businesses, particularly yours, you've done a huge amount in such a short uh, space of time and you talk about the evolution of your role within it. But are there parts you look back over the last three years and say, wow, that was really great. I'm starting to feel really good about things and that that's a marquee moment. I think you do have to pause and look back because we're in the world of never really being satisfied as, as entrepreneurs and founders because you, you always have to demand more. Like it's always about expectations. And as soon as you start to say, oh, yeah, you know, the job is done, mission complete, it's like, that's probably when you start getting worse. So it's kind of a weird dynamic because you, you I don't think you can like congratulate yourself too mm-hmm. much, but yet I do think you should because otherwise it's sort of torture. <laughs> and I'm probably, I'm really harsh on myself and yeah. it causes me pain sometimes. I, harsh <laughs> and I need to look back and go, fuck, like you shouldn't, what we've done is pretty significant. If yeah. you'd given me this three years ago, I would have been like, whoa, like yes, it's a real business. It employs over 50 people. We've got thousands of customers. And, and I, I would like, I would have been really proud of that. And now I'm sitting here going, and we need to do this, 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 this. Yeah, 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 and I'm yeah. like, okay, just take it, take a breath. So yeah, I think um, there's been a lot of milestones along the way. I think um, one thing we've done this year in terms of specifics is really like, you know, focus is your friend. Narrow the focus down as much as possible to get as much as possible done. We've yeah. kind of learned that by doing. Therefore, you're also kind of eliminating complexity. And really, if, if things are too complex, they're probably wrong. You know, you yeah. can't really scale if it's so intricate and complex that it needs 100 people to manage it. But in 2019, even going back to last year, we like there were such big signs of potential there in terms of certainly revenue growth um, and also like reviews and consistency of reviews. Mm-hmm. And then I, I think the key thing there, so like that was a great sort of year in some respects, it was the liftoff year in ways, but was the hiring that we did, you know, and, and building that team and then the team is the culture and then you, you just have this culture all of a sudden. And, and that was like a, a great moment. And your you know, your team nights out are no longer just you and John. It's like, <laughs> you know, other like 25 people and that crowd yeah. next time. And, and then um, I've really enjoyed that. And it gets easier as you, as you get bigger, because then all of a sudden what you notice in terms of milestones is you're hiring someone and, and you're asking them, have you heard of any of our brands? And they're like, Oh yeah, I order from them all the time. You're like, that's pretty what? cool. <laughs> so when you start on day one, nobody knows who you are. Yeah. Like another story to tell. Yeah, I think um, you know the other other milestones or, or things that I would look back on are like how my role has evolved, and you kind of touched on this. And it's like what I used to do on day one, day day one hundred, and and now what I do now. It's like it's just different, like different job every single time. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's it's good, and I think. Um, there's now more of an emphasis there's more scope to think uh which is a great sort of stage to be at rather than just constantly doing and so i think about the potential i think about how we can kind of harness that potential and there's a great quote i heard the other day but potential kind of foreshadows uh, performance or future performance perhaps so if you're not working on the potential of the business, then the future performance is the same as today. And you've, you've always got to be building the infrastructure for tomorrow's business and, you know, you know, building the infrastructure that can support double the sales or whatever it might be. So they were like putting it, putting a team in place that can handle all of these other new things that we need to work on. So 
that's that's great to reach that point and that is you know that's definitely where we're at now yeah mm. Uh, well, Mark, honestly, cannot thank you enough. I've really enjoyed just sitting and listening and hearing about the Foodomnia story so far. You gave so many good nuggets there, and it's just been absolutely fascinating to listen to. Um, yeah, not at all. I really enjoyed it as well, Caroline. Yeah. yeah, and obviously, the very best luck for continued success, and hope you go on and absolutely smash it. But um, yeah, thank you so much again for the time today.